Come and pour out your words now and edify us, teach us as we reflect on the life of St. Oswald and grow in us more and more, grow in our hearts a love for and grow in our minds an imagination for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. few hours ago this morning, Gary asked me who was reflecting at Midweek Eucharist, and I said, I am, and he said, who are you reflecting on? And I said, St. Oswald, and he said, you always get the obscure ones, don't you? And that's not quite true. Um, I did St. Benedict last time, and that was <clears throat> 18 minutes of reflecting on a Midweek Eucharist, so this one will be appropriately short to kind of uh, even out the reflection time. St. Oswald is more obscure. Actually, we've been using as one of our resources for these lesser feasts, these saints, uh, the Episcopal Church's Lester Feasts and Fasts. The ACNA is working on their version. Um, but Oswald is one of those that's so obscure, he's not even in there. And they better have one in the ACNA version because we need some info on him. Uh, so I turn, as I often do, to uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica for some of our uh, information about St. Oswald. So briefly, he was an Anglo-Saxon king of Northumbria from 633 to 642. He introduced Celtic Christianity and its missionaries to his kingdom and gained ascendancy over most of England. His father, Aelfrith, had ruled two ancient Northumbrian kingdoms of Bernicia and Daria. He was expelled from Northumbria upon the accession of his uncle Edwin in 616, and Oswald and his brother took refuge at Ionia, which is a famous center of Christianity in early Uh, I don't even want to say Britain. It's not Britain by then. But uh, in that early area, Northumbria, that is, um, Ionia was one of the most important centers. There was a monastery there, very important for the introduction of Christianity to the British Isles. And so they were converted to Christianity there. And Edwin, his uncle, was killed fighting King Codwallen. That's not, I mean, this is a Braveheart movie right now. (laughs) King Codwallen of Glenwood in northern Wales. Next year, Oswald was defeated and killed, excuse me, Oswald himself killed and defeated Codwallen near Hexham. And then it's at Oswald's invitation when he was king, he asked St. Aidan to lead a group of Irish monks from Ionia, that important center, to found a monastery and be a missionary bishop in his kingdom at Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne, excuse me. See, I'm not used to all these yet. Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne, thank you. you. You would know. The historian Bede says that he asserted his authority over all the peoples of southern England. He was defeated eventually by a pagan king and killed at Masterfelth. Um, and his, uh, at, at the time of his death, he was considered a martyr for the faith by the local people in the Northumbrian church. And it was believed, as many martyrs and saints before, that his remains worked miracles. We've talk, I talked about that with Benedict, how there's some, there's some magic, you might say, Um, what we might actually better call some supernatural power associated with him and his memory and his remains. So uh, that's a bit about him. He was just a king, a martyr, a Christian who tried to spread Christianity through his kingdom. It shows the importance of a good godly ruler, especially in something like a monarchy. If you go to the website New Advent, which is a a very good um, Roman Catholic resource for a lot of stuff, particularly saints, they have even more detail and many more uh, really mythical-sounding names. And this is what got me thinking about how we might reflect on St. Oswald. All these names, Codwallen, Oswald, 
Lindisfarne. But it sounds like the stuff of legend, doesn't it? It sounds like King Arthur and his knights and these enduring myths that have captured our imaginations and lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. It got me realizing that in our imaginations as a culture, as Western people, the thing, the myth of a king and a kingdom is still very, very important. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of fun, right? I'm sure we've all done it as children watching uh, movies about knights and ladies and princes and princesses. And we, we get captured by this idea of a kingdom, captured by this idea of going out and, and fighting for a kingdom if, uh, if that's your style or serving in a kingdom if that's your style. And what, what it got me thinking about was the fact that it seems to me that in our imaginations, the fantasy of the kingdoms that we play out on screen or read in books or think up as we daydream usually captures our hearts and our minds so much more than the reality that we live in the kingdom. There is a kingdom. It does exist. It is far better and more impressive and more awesome and more wonderful than anything our imaginations can dream up. And yet... Can't we be like those Israelites complaining while we have the food in our hands and not, we're not seeking the spiritual food, right? I mean, the, the parallel there that I just thought of from the gospel is that they have the bread of life. They have Jesus in the kingdom right in front of them. And he says, you only came to me because you got your share of the loaves. And we have the opportunity right in front of us to live in and into and then out of a supernatural kingdom where Jesus literally is king and the Spirit fills us up to exercise His power and authority and we trade it for fantasies. We trade it for dreaming, daydreaming, and I've, I've done this too. This is not a condemnatory statement. I've, I've done that. We, we trade it for imagining that we're kings in some faraway British land hundreds of years ago where life would have been very rough. And we have right in front of us the king, the kingdom. It's what we're all seeking, actually. I mean, I think that's the reason that these stories endure so long for so many people is that what we are seeking is a kingdom, whether we we know it or not. That came up this morning in the Inklings. I almost always find a way to get the Inklings in because it's such a great group. We're reading uh, Live Not By Lives by Rod Dreher. And uh, it's, it's a very political book. It's talking a lot about our cultural moment, our political moment. But um, he's commenting on Karl Marx and his vision politically of where things are going and what needs to happen to get where we should go. Briefly, he says, crucially, Marx, this is Dreyer kind of summing him up. Marx and his followers forecast the revolution as a bloody showdown between good, the workers in this case, and evil, the capitalists in Marx's case. And prophesy, this is what Marx prophesied, quote, the victory of justice and the establishment of an earthly paradise. One of our number, a very intelligent man who is in this particular context a bit more a voice of critique of most of the others in the group, reminded us that at some basic level, Marx has a good idea as to what needs to happen. What he said was, this gentleman in our Inklings group, he said that what Marx wants, right, the victory of justice and the establishment of a fair, equitable, equal, just, good kingdom is what we want. 
Here's what Jesus says about the kingdom in Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Other translations or a little parallel, uh, um, a variant reading would say, the kingdom of God is within you. So what Marx got wrong and what so many political messiahs get wrong is to think that we could establish the kingdom on our own terms, in our own ways, in purely secular facets. But what we have to remember as kingdom people, as people who are in the church, as people who are in Christ and filled by the Spirit, is that we actually have the real kingdom right in us. Not just in the midst of us, not just around us, but within us. See, that's where the kingdom happens. That's where the kingdom comes first. And it's as the kingdom comes into the hearts of men and grows outward and gets into more hearts and a community of, of kingdom people revolves around that little message of the gospel and affects the world around it. That's where the kingdom comes. It doesn't come from the outside in through political means. It comes through the gospel being preached and Jesus being submitted to and the Spirit filling his people and then people being captured by the fact that the best kingdom we could ever think of exists and is in us. So I pray that we would trade, all of us, myself included, our fantasies, our daydreams of what we could be in a faraway kingdom hundreds of years ago for the reality that we are in fact sons and daughters of the king serving the king of the universe and we have the kingdom within us. And as that captures our imaginations, if we could see that the kingdom we actually live in and serve in and can grow and come out from us and, and go to other people and, and cause miracles to happen and let healings happen and restore relationships and, and bring people into right order, if that can capture our imaginations, if that can capture our hearts, if that can capture a group of people, there's no telling how much better God can make this little pocket of the world we call Georgetown. I pray that it becomes so in Jesus' name. Amen.